Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Hey friends, welcome again to Engage 360 from Denver Seminary. We are really glad you are with us. My name is Don Payne, your host. Our guest in this episode, glad to say, is the renowned and inimitable Dr. Michael Bird. Mike, welcome. Well, hello, Don. Hello to all your listeners. And it is an absolute joy and treat to be with you. We are so glad you could. Uh, Mike is the academic dean and lecturer in theology, what we, we, we would call a professor of theology at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia. Originally, though, from Bris- Brisbane. Brad, do you say that? Brisbane? Brisbane? Uh, Brisbane. Brisbane. Okay. We're also joined by Dr. Joey Dodson, uh, who's here for uh, color commentary, if he has anything <laughs> colorful to say. Joey, good to have thanks, you back. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. Glad to have you here. Um, well, you've done, your, your bio is extensive, and uh, people can find this on your, um, on the Ridley College website. Uh, you spent time in the Australian Army? I certainly did. Paratrooper? Thir- 13 years, a paratrooper, military intelligence, and then chaplain's assistant. Yeah. Okay. Uh, before you went, and in fact, you became a Christian, in the army, is that correct? That's correct. I, I did not grow up in a, a Christian home. We were not a church-going family, and the first time I went to church uh, in, in in my life, you know, besides wedding and funerals, was when I was twenty years old. I um, I remember first time I became acquainted with your background. I uh, was kind of running the timeline and was struck with no small amount of of ungodly envy because I realized you became a believer. Uh, years after I graduated from seminary and had spent years in pastoral ministry, and then I found myself using your textbooks in my classes. And I thought, Lord, Lord, we need a theodicy for this. This is, like, not fair. A <laughs> um, lot, lot of our listeners, especially those who are either current students or have been our students in the last few years, will recognize uh, Mike's name from the big evangelical theology text that is our anchor text for our theology courses, we're glad to say. Um, just been really pleased with with that work and grateful to you for the the works. Now it's in, in second edition. Yeah, yeah. Well, I did my best to try improve it from the first edition, fix up a few things, add on a few things, and yeah, it's been very well received in all parts of the world. Uh, I just found out it's being used as a textbook for a seminary program in a in a prison mm. for prisoners who have no prospect of release. Oh my. So, uh, yeah, it's being used in, in a, a great number of places around the world, and it's very encouraging to me uh, when you, s- you you spend so much time and energy in a book and it gets a positive reception. You hear some of the stories of people who have had a, a positive encounter with the book or come away with their face, faith uh, affirmed or encouraged or even challenged. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember some years ago when your first edition had was just released, and we on the theology faculty were reviewing a few texts that were released at the same time to consider whether we wanted to switch our anchor text for our theology courses. And I remember reading yours uh, and thinking a couple of things. One, I really love the way you have organized it because I teach theological method, and methodologically I think this is the way theology ought to be organized. Uh, really appreciated that. On a lighter note, I thought to myself, this is written in a way that might actually might actually help people not hate theology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that, if that's your one goal, it's a pretty low bar. <laughs> it's a pretty low bar. Well, you know, given, given um, I mean, not everybody who comes to seminary comes in 
keenly interested in the subject of theology. Hopefully they are interested in it just as Christians, but not always in the academic study of theology. But I think it's, uh, it's served us well in that regard. We're really grateful for your work. Well, um, Mike, you've got just a, a whole raft of, of great publications out mm-hmm. in all seriousness. And I think the most recent, is this the most recent, Religious Freedom in a Secular Age? Uh, it's up there. It's definitely up there. It's one of the more recent volumes. Okay. This, this book um, seems to reach out kind of a bit beyond your typical scholarly interests. Um, it's not theology proper, not New Testament studies. Those are your, you know, your real mm-hmm. wheelhouse. What prompted you to write this? Well, basically a cultural moment. We're having huge debates about religion, religious freedom in America, the United Kingdom, Australia, other countries around the world. And I wanted to think about this theologically because, uh, at least in Australia, we are really tearing ourselves apart over this stuff. And, I mean, a lot of it comes down to religion versus LGBT rights in terms of law, ethics, inclusiveness, and anti-discrimination law. But there's also just a lot of general, somewhere between apathy and hostility towards religion itself in Australia. And Christians have to start thinking about this. How do we relate to a wider culture where we're not the most popular people on the planet, where we do hold unpopular opinions? And what does it mean for our political sector? What does it mean for the interface between law, religion, education, but charities, philanthropic ministries? How are we going to get on with our witness in a far more uh, contested and adversarial context? What's your elevator speech or the basic argument for the book? Basically, we have a problem because there are two good things that are being brought into conflict. Everyone agrees religious freedom, in principle, is a good thing. And everyone agrees, too, that LGBT rights, in principle, are good things. But what happens when they come into conflict? What is the mechanism for resolving those conflicts? Now, we don't want religion to be used as a stick to batter sexual minorities. But at the same time, forcing a Muslim uh, college to hire a gay atheist probably isn't going to work out either. What I argue is part of the solution is having a really good account of secularism, okay? Now, for some people, secularism is, is a scary yeah, book a dirty, dirty word. It's right? a horrible, it's the thing we're up against. Secularism is about creating space for people of all faiths and none, about defining the areas where religion is allowed to matter and where it is, it is immune from government interference, and then defining the areas where religion is not allowed to matter. And that becomes the basis for a a multicultural, liberal, pluralistic democracy. Secularism means you can have a, a mosque, a Muslim house of worship, next to an LGBT advocacy center, and you can live in peace with each other. You know, you, you, you don't want to um, force the Muslims to change their religion to get with the program. But at the same time, you know, you, you don't do punitive actions against, you know, LGBT groups because you're not a fan of who they are or what they do. So it's about a way of living at peace with differences, l- l- managing differences within diversity without resulting to hatred, animosity or, in, in the worst case, political violence. It sounds like in some sense you are arguing that secular or I don't know if we would say secularism, but um, to be secular is 
a good thing, where secularism in some sense is our friend. Is that fair to say? Uh, yes, and, and this, is, this is what I tell people. Secularism is not one thing. It's 20 different things. Mm. The secularism of the United Kingdom is very different to the secularism of the United States. Mm-hmm. I mean, because in the United Kingdom, they have a uh, the, the, now the king, King Charles. He is technically the head of the Church of England. Mm-hmm. And the king, through the crown, through various committees, appoints bishops and key positions in the Church of England. And yet it's a very secular, multicultural country. I mean, put it this way, you've got a Christian king, you've got a Hindu prime minister, you've got, I believe, a uh, Buddhist uh, secretary of the Home Office, and you've got a Muslim mayor of London. Uh, But I mean, so there you have a kind of, you might call it almost like a soft nationalism, but it's got a certain degree of secularity where people of a variety of faiths uh, you know, are able to participate in the political spectrum. Oh, I should add, you know, the opposition leader, Keith Starmer, he's, I think he's more of an agnostic or an atheist. So you, you've got everyone participating and no one's killing each other over their religion, even though you have an official state church. Mm-hmm. And then we could talk about France and what they do in laicite, and you've got the secularism of Turkey. So there's all different ways of secularism. And there are, there are some militant forms of secularism, like what you might find somewhere such as North Korea and maybe China. But secularism is a great tool for ensuring that everyone can practice their religion and no one is punished because of their religion and religion cannot be used as a tool to punish others. That sense of secularism is a good thing. We might call that a a, a benevolent or a positive mode of secularism. How does that compare to what, uh, was it Niebuhr called the naked public square? Do I have the... I think so. Is that Niebuhr? Mm-hmm. I yeah. Think so. yeah. Yeah, I mean, the idea where everyone can go in and have their say, yeah, uh, yeah that, that is something how it would be. And you, you can talk from a Christian perspective, a Muslim perspective, you know, agnostic, you know, uh, gay Gothic from Georgia. You can have any perspective you like and mm-hmm. you're allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. Though I think we are facing challenges these days because I, 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 there is a tendency in our culture to become more post-liberal. Uh, people want to shut down some of the views they don't like because they regard them as harmful. And and that strikes me as a bit concerning because I remember the time where people would say things like, I, uh, I disagree virulently with what you say. I disagree very much, but I, but I will defend your right to say it. I'm worried the second part of that we're losing. We're losing the idea I've got to defend the speech of the people I disagree with. And I, I think for, from both the left and the right, there are some post-liberal tendencies and people want the other team, the other side, people who are different to be censored and for their own views, not just to be hegemonic, but basically to rule out or censor uh, everything that is contrary to that. Yeah, in, you know, Joey just um, thankfully corrected me, the Naked Public Square, that's Richard John Newhouse. Um, in that sense, Mike, it sounds like uh, Christians should be at the forefront of advocating for those uh, free rights of expression on behalf of the people with whom we might most violently disagree. Violently yeah. may be the wrong word here, but most most intensely disagree. Yeah, well, we have a uh, we have our own reasons or a, a very good self-interested reasons to making sure that uh, Muslims, Jewish communities, Mormons, Buddhists, I don't know, other great religions, Dallas Cowboys. Vegans. Vegans. Uh, mm. that, that everyone is uh, able... Well. <laughs> 
vegan Dallas Cowboy supporters, <laughs> uh, that everyone has the ability to live their life according to their conscience, their way of belief. Now, obviously, there are limits. You know, it depends on the degree right. of detriment to others, and this is some of the debates we're having. But that, that we, but we, we would want to do that. We, and this is this is the way I anchor it biblically. I say, look, you know, if you're going to love your neighbour, you must your you must allow your neighbour to be other than you. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, because if you're forcing your neighbour to become a Christian either at the point of a sword, at the point of a gun, at the point of socio-political coercion or saying you can't fully participate in society because you are not X or whatever it is, uh, that's, that's not loving your neighbor. Mm. And I think it's, it's uh, important for Christians that if we are going to love our neighbors, we need to recognize they have the right to be different to us. Mm-hmm. You, you seem to have, from various things I've read of yours, Mike, you have uh, what to me is an impressive awareness of the American political and cultural scene. Um, I, I can't imagine that Aussies in general are all that enamored of U.S. culture and politics, partly because Australians strike me as being just about as fiercely proud and independent as Americans are. Um, but wh- what has prompted that for you, oh, that, well, that I'm, awareness I'm, of American culture and political scenes? Oh, well, a number of things for me. Uh, I, I make, you know, between one to, between one to three trips to America a year. So I come visit. Uh, most of them, I have my more books in America than in Australia, uh, as you can imagine. Uh, two-thirds of my speaking invitations are somewhere in the United States. And here's the other thing, and you've got to appreciate this. Because of the English language, because of movies, because of media, because of the Internet, uh, everything that happens in America is broadcast in the Anglophone world. So anywhere where they speak English you get American media reporting. So, you know, say on the nightly news in Australia, we'll get our own political news, but the next thing we will get the American political news. And here's, here's the weird thing, here's the weird thing. We have what's called the High Court of Australia, the, various, you know, the highest court of the land. I could not name you one single justice who sits on that court, but I swear I could name more than half of the justices on the Supreme on the court, court of the United States. And, I mean, you've got to appreciate how American-saturated our movies, media, and news is. And that's why a lot of people outside of America feel like they live in the 51st state of America. That's why in Melbourne you'll have have protests. You'll have, like, Black Lives Matter protests or Roe v. Wade protests in Australia. I mean, we are literally as far from America as you can possibly be. But because of the English language and media and some shared political cultures— uh, we think we all participate in the, in the same world. What do you think American Christians have to learn from Australian Christians? Hmm. Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. Uh, I think we're a little bit further down the road in terms of the secularization mm-hmm. of a country. So, you know, obviously you've got the rise of nuns, you know, people with, with uh, no religious affiliation in America. Yeah, we're further down the track on that one, and we're, we are beginning to, to feel the demographic change uh, as we go along that. Uh, the, the, there, are, there are some other differences. Australians can be fairly eclectic in the way they do theology, uh, so they will be willing to listen to a lot of different people. But I would say the number one difference between uh, American evangelicals and, and I think evangelicals in other parts of the world, and this was pointed out to me, John Stackhouse, is that American evangelicals can sometimes give the impression that they were divinely elected to be in charge. 
Uh, and now part of that's because of the heritage and the history because uh, there was a whole bunch yeah. of sort of disaffected Puritans who came to America to uh, establish the New Jerusalem. Well, there you go. And it seems that the wrong people are running the New Jerusalem or oh. some people say it's no longer the New Jerusalem. Now it's kind of like, you know, Babylon the worst, uh, that kind of thing. And I think there is a tendency to want to recapture that, that, you know, we're meant to be a city on the hill. We're meant to be a New Jerusalem yeah. and we need the right Christians in charge. That is not a thing in Australia. Australia was not founded as a neo-Puritan colony. It was founded as, as a, a prison colony. It was right? founded as yeah. a prison colony. And part, I, I, mean, didn't, my, I, didn't, I didn't know if you were going to say that or if I was going to have Yeah, I knew it was yeah. coming. Yeah. I knew it was coming. And, and a, lot of, a lot of the convicts were Irish, and as part of their punishment, they were, they were forced to worship uh, using the Anglican style of worship, the Book of Common Prayer. That was part of their punishment. You know, you know, so from the very get-go, religion was used punitively uh, at, at some point. So, I mean, we have had moments of religious revival, like the 1959 Billy Graham crusade. That did have a very big effect on uh, Australia. Uh, but generally, we're not a country known for our religion. Uh, we're known for other things, uh, mostly animals that can <laughs> sting, kill, and eat you. And kangaroos. Uh, and kangaroos. And you know, a few good uh, Hollywood actors we produce, ranging from Nicole Kidman, Hugh Jackman, Chris Hemsworth, that kind of a thing. Uh-huh. But the religious texture in Australia is very, very different. And it's and even for those who are um, religious or, or, or devout, um, it, it can be more compartmentalized from the rest of the world. Where I think in uh, America, faith really does um, saturate and permeate a lot of a lot more aspects of life. Yeah, probably so. Even in many parts of the country that we would think of as more secular, still, yeah, um, yeah, because um, you you compared Seattle. Uh, Portland, maybe, to Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And uh, from things I've heard, um, Melbourne's even further down the road in oh, yeah, some, I mean, some respects of secularism. Yeah, oh, definitely. I mean, uh, the st- I mean, I'm in the state of Victoria. The state of Victoria is so progressive, it makes Massachusetts look like Alabama in comparison. Okay. Wow. I mean, it mm-hmm. is it's very, very progressive there. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some ways, or in fact, I, I find a little bit scary, I would say. Mike, I want to talk a little bit about your scholarship. You have, as I mentioned earlier, been a very productive scholar uh, for which many of us are, are deeply in your debt. And, and you're a, just a really busy guy as well. You've got a lot of responsibilities at Ridley College. Um, wh- what advice would you give to budding scholars about how to, how, to, how to be productive, how to get a lot done, especially if they have a lot on their plate like you do? Oh, there's a number of things. I would say in terms of mapping out your career, Early on, uh, focus on language learning, both primary source languages and uh, modern languages. So I, I, Joe, Joey Dodson's having a moment. Yeah, I wish, a moment over here. I, wish I, had, I wish I'd worked harder on my— Say it louder so the people in the back can hear you. I wish I'd worked harder on my theological German. I wish I'd done some things like Aramaic or Coptic or Syriac because I've, I've, got, I've got Greek and kind of bumble my way through a bit of Hebrew. But, you know, I wish I'd done more on the uh, yeah. languages. The other thing I tell people to do uh, is rotate their reading uh, between primary uh, texts. So, you know, go through the whole, whole lower library, the Apocrypha, uh, all the Pseudepigrapha, read church history, read the church father. So go read some primary sources and then uh, read some secondary literature. So I, I try to go, I try to oscillate between the two. I read, you know, like a lower volume, and then, you know, it's, it's you know, ancient classics, yeah. and then I'll read like a, a new book that's and just you, come you out. You still keep that reading rhythm. I still keep that going rhythm. to this day. And uh, what what the difference between a, a good scholar is someone who knows the secondary literature, but a great scholar 
or a great researcher is someone who has mastered the primary sources and has a, has a great command of them. That, 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 that's the real difference between good and great. The other thing I tell people is uh, get a good routine going, whether that's a study routine or a research routine. Uh, compartmentalize your, your time. You know, like for me, uh, my primary day of research is Friday. I may have a few other hours around the time, but I, I, I try to use that one day of research really well and milk it for everything I can. And, uh, you know, developing certain routines and rhythms like that. Routine might be a bit boring, uh, but it means the important stuff gets done. And the other thing I tell uh, my students is to eat the frog first, uh, which is code for do the hardest thing first. Ah, so if, you, if there's something great. you've got to do in the course of research, uh, do the hardest thing first. You know, if there's that German mon, if you're a PhD student, there's a German monograph you've got to work through. Get the hardest thing done first. It's all downhill from there. Yeah. Yeah, so exactly. That's, that's, I think that's, that's my advice to students. And just, just, I think, faithful plugging away is a good idea with any sort of project that you're working on, whether that's a master's dissertation or you're working on a journal article or, you know, maybe you're working, preparing something for a podcast. Just, just gently plug away on a couple of different things and uh, eventually all your ducks will be lined up and uh, then, I guess, come home for Christmas, I hope. Yeah, it's amazing how much we can get done just a few pages at a time. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mike, talk to us a little bit about your ministry experience. I know you are, are ordained as an Anglican priest. Um, how, does your, how does all that come together with your academic work? Well, in a number of different ways. I've, I've been like a pastoral intern in a church. I've, you know, I do a lot of preaching and teaching. I've been part of home study groups. Uh, I'm an ordained Anglican priest, so I you know, participate in the preaching life and the sacramental life at our seminary. Uh, in, in addition to that, it, it, I, I do have a role in the pastoral formation of students. It's not my primary role at college. But when we're, when we're covering things in class, whether that's the exegesis of the Gospel of Mark, whether that is looking at a difficult topic in ethics or exploring something like the impassibility of God, you've always got to have your mind thinking about the so what. You know, what, what difference does this make and how does this this topic that we're currently discussing in class, how is that going to resonate or play out in the churches where my students are currently serving? I mean, we were doing this uh, just yesterday when I was in Joey's class on Romans, and we're talking about, you know, how do you, how do you live with differences? And you can be in a society where you've got some difficult decisions to make. And I, I gave the example, imagine you're a, a chaplain in a hospital or a, or a hospice, and, you know, uh, you have a, a, a gay couple who ask you, could you officiate our wedding? You know, you, you know, what do you do in that context? You've got a partner who's dying. You know, what do you do? Because if you, if you don't do it, uh, you could be in trouble with the hospital or the hospice. But if you do do it, you could lose your ordination. So it's a, it's a, it's a really kind of double whammy. I mean, what do you do in that context? How do you negotiate these difficult circumstances? Yeah, and so, those are not uncommon in ministry settings. Exactly. Not at all. Yeah, I mean, life, life is filled with these moments of uh, confrontation and moral ambiguity uh, where you have often, you know, two, two things that are in conflict. Uh, and it's not just a being pragmatic. You've got to have a theological rationale, some kind of framework that's going to help you think through the issues and why you're making the decisions you're making. That's one thing I've greatly appreciated about much of your work is is helping us think theologically, not in just rote, um, repetitious ways as we always have, but to think uh, creatively and theologically for the sake of faithfulness. Um, and th that's kind of my own segue as a theologian into 
um, talking about your perspectives on theology, because the way Christians do theology always seems to reflect um, the challenges that they're facing in their context and their time, uh, or it should anyway. Do, do you see any shifts of emphasis that are needed for our theological work in the current age? Not not different theology per se, not not different content, different commitments, but um, you know where the accent marks get placed over our theological emphases and just the organization of how we're thinking about our lives and our our engagement with the world theologically. Any any shifts you see needed? Yeah, I think we do need to sharpen up our our anthropology, our doctrine of humanity, because a lot of the debates we're having in our culture about you, know, you name it, you know, gay marriage, personal identity, sex, euthanasia, all these things are somehow a uh, they're somehow linked to what we think about the human being. Okay, and we've got to recognize there are different ways of thinking about ethics. You know, is it based on duty? Is it based on virtues? Or is it based on a on a dichotomy of pleasure and pain? So, I mean, you know, different people have different way about thinking about ethics or what is human flourishing? What is the good life? Uh, should all human desires be fulfilled? Or is desire, in some cases, a, a bad thing? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, mean, I mean, all the major religions, you know, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, uh, Buddhism, um, I think Hinduism as well, many of them would say that desire is not a good thing. It can be a very bad thing that we need to master. Yeah, it needs or to we, be expunged from us somehow. Yeah, or right. we need to be mastered by it. I mean, so that, I mean, like in, in Buddhism, they, you, you've got to get rid of desire. I think in Christianity, I mean, desire is something you've got to master or it will master you. So that there are things like that we've got to think, we've got to think about as well. So I think our, our doctrine of anthropology, our, our doctrine of humanity is very important. But also realize we're, we're, we're living in a world where it's, it's post-Christian but not un-Christian. And a lot of the debates we are having are really in-house Christian debates mm. where pe- both, both the left and the right are arguing according to Christian principles, but only one, only one side of the ledger seems to be explicitly aware of it. I mean, this is something I learned from Tom Holland, uh, not Spider-Man. I'm thinking <laughs> of the, of the uh, British historian. <laughs> He says the culture wars are basically an in-house Christendom debate, but only one side of it recognizes that they're arguing a Christian currency. Mm. So, I mean, for example, like this, in, in our culture, and this is true in Australia, is it true in America, we have a strong emphasis on looking after people who are marginalized, protecting the victim, you know, people who have been oppressed or persecuted. Uh, and and, and can, you, can you think of any particular religion where the central symbol of that religion is someone who was cruelly, unfairly, and unjustly executed by a massive imperial power. Mm. Can you think of any religion where that is the central symbol? Uh. So, I mean, it's Christian. So you could argue a a big part of progressive values uh, is simply accenting Highlighting, prosecuting the idea that you know that that being a be, being being the victim, being the the object of sacrifice, is the single greatest good, and we must always be on on the side of the oppressed. We must always stand with the marginalized, those who are forgotten and lost. So, I mean, that's that's a Christian thing. But then on the other side, you've got this whole Christian tradition. Uh, rooted in scripture about how to construct a, a Christian civilization, how to rid ourselves of things like desire, how we can strip away the paganisms and the idolatries 
of our age where sex is a good thing, but it's not to be worshipped. Sex is part of life, but it's not the goal of life. So here you have two different you know, systems of thought coming into conflict, but they've both grown from the same flower. And I, that's one thing I, I don't think we, we understand, that uh, that the debates we're having uh, in America, Australia, the UK, about a, a variety of different things, ranging from, you know, euthanasia, or abortion, same-sex marriage, these are in-house debates. That, that they're, they're not happening in places like China or India, or if they are, they're, ha- they're happening for different reasons, yeah. and they play out yeah. in a very different way. Yeah. But a lot of these things are in-house Christian debates. So... Uh, we have such a, we still have such a Christianized worldview. Uh, people may not understand it or recognize it, uh, but but even even some of our you know most liberal socialist Marxist people uh, ultimately just look like um, Cappadocian fathers with tattoos and piercings, mm. uh, and that's 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 the real that's the real weird thing going on. Um, so I, I think those two things we've got to understand. We've got to have a good thick understanding of the doctrine of. Humanity, what it means to be a human being, and we've got, got to understand that we're at a moment where we're having these really strange in-house post-Christendom debates about how to how to be a society, how to be a civilization. Mm, yeah, and a lot of our conversations, we're just breathing our own exhaust, aren't we? Mm, exactly. Yeah. Joey Dodson, what um, what have you come to appreciate most about uh, our guest, Mike Bird? I appreciate about Mike what I appreciated about him when I first met him. Um, I was in Aberdeen, and he came down from Dingwall and presented a paper, and he stood his ground against some of the giants in New Testament. And he didn't just stand his ground, but he did so in a cheeky manner, in an entertaining manner. And you see that in his works as well, where it's comprehensive, but it's also catchy, um, and it's entertaining. And so, yeah, I, I would ask Mike, what is his favorite footnote uh, that you've placed uh, that gives us a, a capture of that. We, he may be talking about the Pistis Christou debate, um, and then he'll have a footnote of Kanye West or someone. So what's your favorite footnote? Oh, I mean, there's, there's so many funny ones. Um, oh, I can't, off the top of my head. I mean, I, I mean I, I'll quote like anything from Tim Keller tweets. You know, I'll refer to some bizarre website that said, oh, probably the best one, the best one, I think I have a footnote where I was talking about the rapture. And it turns out that there is a place, there's a website called um, Post-Rapture Pet Care. So a bunch of atheists <laughs> have agreed that in the event of the rapture and they are left behind, they, they, will, they will look after your pets in the event of the rapture. I think I, I, think I was once discussing. This is good to know. It's, well, I <laughs> my mean, my you know, dog's going with me. I'm carrying her <laughs> when we go up. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, there's there's stuff like that I, I I I put in, but I mean, my view is you know theology and biblical studies shouldn't be dull or boring, and um, I tell people I I tend to write the way I speak, so I kind of want to combine you know some serious scholarship, but it doesn't have to be austere, dour, and dull, and I think we can invest something of our own personality, our own. Uh, our own uniqueness in how we communicate. And, and from what I understand, uh, some people find this great, refreshing, and enjoyable. Other people regard it as juvenile and grossly inappropriate. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you, know, you, can't, you can't please Never every, please them all. Can't yeah. please them all. But, you know, I, I enjoy just making these few observations here and there. Uh, I, th- I think, I, 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 think I, I did once quote um, 
a guy called Marcus Marcus Borg, famous, mm-hmm. uh, a very liberal Anglican mm-hmm. scholar. And I think I had a footnote where I said, uh, since since writing this, Marcus Borg has changed his mind on the grounds that he died two years ago. <laughs> uh, now I find that I find that uh, fun and witty, um, and not everyone was most pleased with those observations. Well, I, I think I can speak genuinely for many of us in the Denver Seminary community about how we benefited from your work and enjoyed your work, so thank you. Well, that is wonderful to hear. Yeah. Now, uh, I know uh, lots of lots of folks enjoy listening to you or watching you. It's I don't know if it's a YouTube channel. You have a um, uh, Michael Bird at Substack or uh, Substack.com. What, yeah, yep, d- I, yeah, it's a subscription-based access yeah. to much of your work. Tell us about that. Well, that's a, uh, it's a Substack page. It's uh, michaelfbird.substack.com. Uh, most of that's free for subscribers, so I do about three or four posts a week. You know, three, three of usually two or three of the posts are just free for everyone. I do one other one for people who want to provide me with a special degree of support. But I also run a YouTube channel called Early Christian History. Right, I do all sorts of things there. I kind of interview scholars about books. I do a regular uh, chat with a wonderful lady uh, from Maryland called Amy Bird, and we talk about Christianity, faith, gender as it plays out in the church. Uh, I also do a little um, program called Nazareth to Nicaea where I talk about early Christology. So that's available, and that's a, that's a place where people can acquaint themselves with more of my work. Well, Perhaps yeah. prepare the reader that he doesn't look like Hugh Jackman or Chris Hemsworth. Yo, I, not, I, not all Australians <laughs> look the same? Yo, I try to tell people I'm kind of a cross between um, the, the great Australian scholar Leon Morris, if you don't know, mm. if you don't know, he was a great Australian. A cross between Leon Morris and Conan O'Brien, <laughs> um, but some people tell me they don't quite see the resemblance. Mm. Well, for a start, Conan O'Brien's about a foot taller than I am, so there's there's one <laughs> issue. Yeah, yeah, he's a foot taller than just about everybody I know. Uh, well, that that may be the most unusual but the most fitting note to end on of any interview we've done. But, Mike, just been a pleasure to spend time with you. So glad you could hang out here in Denver for uh, some extra time and be here on our campus. And just re- a real joy to, to, to know you and to benefit from your work. And hopefully you've uh, benefited from your time here as well. I'm having a great time here, Don. It's Good. great being here with, with Joey and the faculty and meeting so many wonderful students at Denver Seminary. Yeah, great. Friends, thanks again for spending some time with us. I want to thank Matt Evans and Christy Ebert, our sound engineers and editors who always do such a famous job for us. Uh, Really grateful for their effort. For Andrea Wayand, our Senior Director of Communications, who makes all this happen from way behind the scenes, but in a crucial way. We'd love for you to contact us. If you have questions or comments, you can email us, podcast at denverseminary.edu. And as I often remind you, you can find all kinds of really good resources on our website, denverseminary.edu. Hope you'll visit that. And if you uh, get the chance and you've benefited from anything you've heard here, give us a rating or review, please. Otherwise, we will look forward to speaking with you again really soon. Take care.